Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today is with great pleasure that my guest is Professor Julia Schatz. Julia is assistant professor at Fresno State in California, and she's also the author of two very intriguing and very interesting articles about uh, people that we never really talked about during the podcast. Nurses, so a politics of care, local nurses in Mandate Palestine, published by Ijmes in 2018, and also a chapter, Governing Jerusalem Children, Revealing Invisible Inhabitants. And we will certainly make these invisible inhabitants the very heart of this uh, podcast today. But first of all, Julia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Julia, my first question is, uh, do you have a special connection with Jerusalem? How did you get to work on you know, Palestine, the American colony, but also children? That's a great question and a, and a, a big question. Um, I, I think that my connection to Jerusalem, my connection to my, my beginnings of working on Palestine, history of Palestine, um, the American colony, history of childhood, all of those things are, as for many uh, scholars and historians, quite accidental. I didn't set out when I began my early career as a young historian. I didn't set out even to work on Palestine um, and certainly not on children. Um, and I, I came, I sort of fell into all of these avenues quite accidentally. I was interested as a historian of the Middle East, I was interested in questions of colonial governance I was interested in questions of public health, of social welfare, and Palestine, and then within Palestine, Jerusalem became, sort of had a gravitational pull for um, being able to answer some of those questions I was interested in, and um, Jerusalem 
especially, and, and my work, I don't, I don't think of myself as a historian of Jerusalem. My work covers many different areas of Palestine, but Jerusalem features fairly prominently. Um, one of the large issues or concerns I'm interested in is the interplay between very local forms of governance and global forms of governance. And Jerusalem in the period that I tend to focus on, the mandate period, uh, late Ottoman and, and slightly after 48 as well, Jerusalem is was just such an incredibly global and transnational space. So it's, it's natural almost to fall into Jerusalem uh, when looking at these questions. And I, I sort of naturally and accidentally fell into Jerusalem. Um, but it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't something I set out to do in any way. I guess that's the common path for many historians, like randomly getting into a topic, unless you really are born with uh, some uh, sort of ideas that you want to develop uh, throughout your career. I'm curious about something because in your article, you talk about the politics of care. And uh, when, when we think about politics of care, I for somehow I, I fall into uh, you know the question of control and maybe it's like my old reading of Foucault, you know, the question of the hospital and these kind of institutions. But I think here it's, it's, it's rather different and it's really about uh, caring uh, about individuals. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what do you mean by politics of care and how this concept played out in mandatory Palestine? Yeah, so the politics of care, which was a, the title of my uh, article, as you said, that was published in Ismus, it, it, it's not a phrase that I invented, and I, I, was, I really borrowed it from scholars that look at this issue of humanitarian governance. So how do we understand the way that people are governed, not necessarily solely through disciplinary functions or disciplinary institutions, but also through humanitarianism? And for so many people, especially in spaces where they're is an absence of a formalized political state. It is humanitarian initiatives, organizations, and networks that end up being the uh, primary mode of governance of, of daily life. And so politics of care to me really refers to the kind of fragmented network that provided and also mediated social services for everyday Palestinians, um, that interacted with everyday Palestinians in daily life to take care of or to address the issues of the social realm. So welfare, um, health care, um, child care. Um, and these, this doesn't mean there isn't a Foucauldian disciplinary function to this or that it was solely motivated by um, actual compassion and care but I'm interested in, in looking kind of out, not outside of the state, but to kind of complicate the idea of the state and look at all of the different fragmented ways in which people's uh, daily lives were actually mediated in a colonial setting. And so that's sort of how I use politics of care, referring to those, that network of institutions that was really the, the way that most everyday people, ordinary people actually interacted with a colonial system. 
I was curious about something in relation to the provider, essentially. Who, who are the people providing care? And, uh, and if you can give us a sense, perhaps, how it changed, you know, between the late Ottoman and then with the British. I mean, I, I suppose there must have been also a change uh, connected to the demographic changes occurring in the population with the arrival of, of the Zionists from Europe. Yes. So this is one of the things that it, there was a change. Absolutely. Um, and this is one of the things, though, that I um, where my research as it developed took twists and turns that I didn't expect. So I, I thought I was going into this project about looking at the humanitarian governance or the social social welfare in Mandate Palestine. I thought I was going to be telling a British colonial story and then a local Palestinian story. And it became much to my surprise not less British, much more American than I expected, which I never intended. Um, so in the in the late Ottoman period, in terms of humanitarian aid and social welfare, there were a, a number of different groups and institutions providing this. Of course, to some extent, the Ottoman government through municipal institutions provided, you know, there were municipal hospitals, especially in the later Ottoman period. Um, there were uh, local Palestinian social welfare organizations, certainly religious organizations, uh, setting up orphanages, um, soup kitchens, all of those kinds of hallmarks of, of charity and, and, and humanitarian aid. There was also, as I think has been documented by uh, many historians, a, a fairly robust um, Christian missionary network in late Ottoman Palestine that really, especially in terms of medical care, provided a great deal of the direct service medical care. Um, and, and many historians have written about this. And Jerusalem is a great, a, a great example of this in terms of a, just a, a huge number of European Christian medical missions um, in the city. So when when the war happens after World War One, when the British mandate is set up, to some extent you might expect a transition to a more centralized system of medical care and welfare coming from the colonial state. Um, that happened in some respects and really did not happen in other respects. The, the British were pretty invested in relying on the existing voluntary associations for direct service work, especially in medical care, um, that they ran into challenges with that because after the war, a lot of those institutions were in complete dire straits financially and actually couldn't sort of fund themselves. So the, 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 the mandate government did step in with a lot of funding um, to sort of prop up those those institutions. And then you had the introduction of newer sort of voluntary associations or what we would now call non-governmental organizations on the scene. Um, yes, the Zionist organizations would be one, uh, you know, and, and, and so for in, in my work on nurses, for example, or on the, in the medical system, Hadassah was, would be a huge uh, organization that began providing a lot of kind of direct service medical care, um, also child welfare programs. 
Um, but also in the wake of the First World War, of course, you had uh, organizations like the American Red Cross um, that show up to provide temporary services, but end up, as I uh, argue in my work, becoming kind of embedded in the permanent governance of, of Palestinians throughout the mandate period. So even though the American Red Cross shows up um, 1918-1919 and is only officially there for a couple years, but a lot of the institutions that they either set up or fund and a lot of the personnel that they bring stay behind and become part of this um, fragmented network of institutions that are caring for everyday Palestinians um, throughout the mandate period. So it's this, it's, you know, what I refer to, I think throughout my uh, Ishmael's article as a mixed economy of care, where you have a colonial government that is increasingly to some extent regulating the practices of things like medical care, but also very dependent on voluntary associations, non-governmental associations, that are both, I mean, simultaneously, some of them are pre, pre-dating World War I, have been part of the local scene for a long time. Um, and some of them are sort of new, new transnational organizations that are coming in. I wanna share you, with you a bit of a bizarre story in order mm -hmm. to ask my next question. So a few years back, when I was living in Ireland, I was hospitalized for kidney stones, nothing special, but I had to spend a few days in the hospital and talking to a nurse, she asked me what I was doing, what I was working on. And I said, well, I work on Jerusalem. And she like, oh, I lived 25 years in Jerusalem and I was working at St. Joseph Hospital. I'm like, okay, wait a second. I wanna know more about you and your story. And accidentally, just a couple of months later, I guess, uh, I, I read uh, your article on Ijmas and made me really think about nurses as, uh, you know, this, again, neglected kind of a category of uh, people uh, around Jerusalem. Because, you know, it's not just about the institutions. As you mentioned, we have uh, hospitals and other organizations coming in. But looking at the pictures of particularly of the American colony, you get to see all of these women serving as nurses. And I just wonder, who are they? I mean... Are they local? Are they coming motivated by religion, politics, settlements, or anything that you can tell us about nurses? Yeah, and this is the story of, I mean, this is a journey I've been on now for a long time trying to find out who these women are. Um, and we'll, if we're talking about sort of revealing the invisible inhabitants of Jerusalem or Palestine more generally, this is where it gets, that process gets really fun and also really frustrating because these nurses came to me first in the archives, just as random names and files. Uh, I was looking, I was looking at infant welfare clinics. Um, I was, I wasn't thinking about the women who were taking care of the babies. I was trying to think about what these institutions were, these, these infant welfare clinics. Um, and then I found in these files um, from the Israel State Archives, just sometimes letters from these women uh, to, the, to the Department of Health, uh, maybe asking for mundane things like more equipment for the clinic, sometimes reporting pretty scandalous interactions they were having with the village population or the town population. And, and so it led me on this path of the exact question you asked, who are they? 
And some women I've been able to track better than others. Um, sometimes they come into the archive and, and disappear. Um, I would say it's a mix of all of the things you mentioned. So some of them are local. Um, some of the women uh, who became nurses in Palestine in this period, you know, were coming out of, a lot of them were coming out of uh, missionary schools and then were funneled into nursing as a profession, especially supported by missions. Um, some of them were not, were from within Palestine, but not necessarily local to the place where they trained or worked. So that was one thing I discovered in researching my article was how mobile some of these women were and how much they were, you know, they would train at one place. So you might train at the government hospital in Jerusalem because to be a nurse, you had to have three years of training to be certified. Um, and then you might be placed in a village uh, clinic, but then you might transfer to the government hospital in Haifa at some point because the government hospital work was higher paid. Um, and I have some examples uh, in the article and then also in other research I've done of, of these nurses who are really traversing Palestine uh, professionally, at least for a, a number of years. And I thought that was such a interesting and unseen story about women as workers, about women's lives um, being sort of mobile professionals that were, were moving from place to place for their work. Some women were coming from outside of Palestine, certainly. Um, so among the nurses in Palestine uh, in the mandate period, you had Palestinian women, you had British women coming in through the uh, British nursing services. These, the British women ended up, were, were supervising nurses in the hospitals. Um, so they were coming, I'm sure, for professional reasons, um, also probably for some sense of adventure. Um, and you had uh, women coming, some small amount of nurses, at least they were trying to recruit nurses from the, the region, but outside of Palestine. So the, the nearest, prior to the development of nurse training institutions in Palestine in the 1920s, the, the nearest sort of major um, nurse training school was the Syrian Protestant College in Beirut. And so early on, there were clinics and uh, hospitals that were trying to get nurses from Beirut. Um, and so you had a little bit of that, a little bit of people coming into Palestine from the region. Um, but mostly they were Palestinian women or um, or British women. And of course, there were lots of lots of um, Jewish women who were training uh, at Hadassah um, or at the government uh, training schools. Um, you had a very large contingent of, of Jewish nurses um, as well, but they were mostly, you know, local to Palestine at that point. I was wondering about uh, sort of the, their role in society. I mean, we said that they're invisible to an extent, but they're also very important because obviously they care about uh, their patients, uh, whether children, uh, men or women or elderly. And I was, I was also wondering about uh, the question of uh, the segregation. I mean, the religious mm -hmm. segregation that followed the arrival of the British. Yeah. 
is there a sense that at some point communities are divided also in terms of like nursing, like taking care of uh, their sick? Well, I think they, so, so you're, you're absolutely right that they, they're, when, when we call them invisible inhabitants, if we're going to use that phrase for the nurses, they're invisible to us now. I, they were certainly not invisible to the communities that they were, they were serving. And one of the arguments I make in that Ishmael's article is that at least in the, in the village clinics and, and village and town, small town clinics, these nurses were incredibly important figures because at an infant welfare clinic, for example, they were the sole medical practitioners. The, the you know, senior medical officer who is nominally in charge is not there. He's maybe showing up every once in a while to check in, but she's the one who's actually running the show. Um, and that made her very important um, in the community. And sometimes it made her a flashpoint for the uh, grievances of the community. So some of the relationships that I track through these files are not friendly. I mean, sometimes the nurse is as clashing with the community um, and, and sometimes she's acting as a real advocate for, for them. Um, so yes, these nurses are incredibly important and important in people's, we have to imagine, we don't have as much evidentiary records of this, but we have to imagine important personally to people in people's intimate lives. They are caring for newborns and for pregnant women they are sometimes, they are delivering children um, if they're nurse midwives. They are caring for the sick. So th these are incredibly intimate figures in people's lives. And, and one of the things I'm always so interested in is how they can be both, you know, people who are very intimate, this intimate form of care and governance that then, and also there are these political figures that are interfacing with this colonial system. Um, so yes, very important figures um, and certainly not invisible to the people who they cared for. Um, in terms of segregation, the, there's such a, an interesting tension that I think is unsurprising to people who studied this period um, between the rhetoric of nurse training and the provision of healthcare and infant care especially and then the sort of structural reality of how it played out. So as I said, the Hadassah Nurse Training School, it was opened in 1918. It, it became very powerful and, and a, a, a place that trained a lot of nurses um, and pretty quickly was a, a fairly robust training school. Hadassah's own rhetoric about what it was doing and its mission was quite progressivist and it was about providing care broadly to Palestine in, in a very, you know, I, for the time, a very sort of patronizing, colonial, civilizing mission way, bringing light to the dark, sick place. Um, but it was nominally talking about providing care to everybody. And at Hadassah Infant Welfare Clinics in Jerusalem, they certainly saw not just Jewish patients, they saw Muslim and Christian Arab patients as well, um, although much in much smaller numbers. And Hadassah collaborated uh, quite directly with infant, uh, infant welfare clinics and committees that were setting up infant care um, for Palestinian Arab populations. So there was a lot of cross collaboration. Medical personnel were sent uh, back and forth. Uh, nurses for a clinic, for instance, an infant welfare center in Ramallah that was opened in the mid 1920s. 
They had their nurse go train with Hadassah for a while. There was a lot of collaboration. This space is so um, intimate and all of the people um, who are setting up these child welfare programs are all sitting on each other's committees and talking to each other. And so there's a real sort of intimate community um, in the, especially in the 1920s um, in the sort of Jerusalem Ramallah area that's, that's dealing with these issues. So it's all very connected in a way. But at the same time, there was just a lot of structural segregation um, that I think ended up like so many institutions in the mandate period ended up with an increasing segregation and separation between communities. And you can see that in the numbers. I have numbers of, of who's visiting Hadassah infant welfare clinics and the percentage of non-Jewish patients from the early 1920s to the mid 1930s just plummets. And part of that is because you have increasing um, alternative institutional options. So you have in Palestinian Arab communities, more and more institutions being set up for these services. But part of that is also just the increasing segregation between the communities. So one of the issues Hadassah faced, they nominally were open to train any nurse, but you had to speak Hebrew to attend. They were gonna do all the classes in Hebrew. They were using a Hebrew, well, they, they, they wanted to teach everything in Hebrew. Their problem at the beginning was there were no nurse educational materials written in Hebrew and none of their Jewish uh, trainees spoke Hebrew at the very beginning. So that was a, that was a, a problem they faced. But that necessarily then closed the ranks of who's who can get in. Um, and similarly, really, um, for the Muslim and Christian nurses, the, the nursing corps in Mandate Palestine was very much dominated by Christian women. There were very few Muslim nurses. The government was always concerned about this. And there have been a lot of explanations given. And the one that's most kind of convincing to me is the structural explanation, which is you needed to have, um, to enter nurse training, you needed to have a primary education. A lot of that was going through the Christian missions. And then there was this funneling of women from the missionary schools into, into missionary medical mission training. So I think that sort of institutional segregation was sort of intentional and unintentional, but it did lead to kind of increasing separation um, over the 1920s and 30s. I was wondering, and I guess this is like two questions in one, mm -hmm. to what extent nurses had uh, some sort of a political agency? And on the other hand, to what extent then political organizations politicized nurses as individuals and their profession? Yeah, this is a, a great question um, and something I, I wrestle with. I think nurses, I certainly see them in my research demonstrating a lot of professional agency, advocating for themselves, advocating for their professional rights. Um, and they were political figures. I mean, they were the, on the one hand, they were absolutely representatives of the colonial government. They were employed by the Department of Health and, rep, and you know, representing that, that system within these, uh, in these communities. Um, 
And on the other hand, I think they often were felt outside of the of the official system. Um, they were politicized for sure by the communities that they served. At least the ones I, I will say. Let me put the caveat that I'm talking here about nurses who served in district nursing, nurses who served in government hospitals. I've done less research on. Um, I hope to do more. And they're in a slightly different position. They're more formally within the kind of hierarchy of government employment, um, and they're in more urban areas. But for district nurses who are serving in towns and villages, they were absolutely, they became politicized figures, especially for the political, local political leadership, whether that was municipal councils or leaders of um, voluntary associations that had, had opened these clinics. And so there would be fights between or our arguments being made by, you know, the municipal council of a certain town to the government about either we need a different nurse or we need a nurse because you took ours away. Um, and what those fights were really about were about demand using nursing, using these infant welfare clinics to demand fund funding and services from the government. And at, we know that in Palestine um, at this time, the, the, the colonial government was quite reluctant to spend money on direct services. And we also know that, you know, it's, it, there were not that many avenues open for kind of political petitioning. I mean, there was right, no legislature, there's no, you know, there's a lot of political representation was being denied. Um, and, and so I found these nurses and the clinics they are working at became conduits and avenues where people could make the argument to the government to demand services, to demand money um, and demand care. And so that, that was really interesting to me that they do become kind of a flashpoint um, between local communities and the colonial government. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to move to talk about uh, the other part of your work, about children, essentially. But uh, I want to first remind uh, the listeners that you have a chapter published in this uh, book, edited book, Ordinary Jerusalem, 1840-1940, which is available because it's open access. So that's uh, an easy find for whoever is interested in, th- in this particular topic. So you're talking about uh, children. And again, you know, you use this, uh, uh, and I really love this, revealing invisible inhabitants idea. But you also focus on the American colony. And given that we had as a guest here on the podcast, Rachel Lev, who used to be, and hopefully will still be uh, later in charge of the archives of the American colony, and also Abigail Jacobson, who worked on the welfare that the American colony provided to the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem during World War I, I was wondering, how did you come across the American colony? And what did you find in the American colony that helped your work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I also came across the American colony somewhat accidentally. I, I knew uh, about the American colony. Of course, I knew about it as a hotel. Um, and then I knew about it vaguely about the colony's history. Um, I had come across uh, prior to actually going there, going to the archives in Jerusalem, I, I had come across their, the, some of the material they had donated to the Library of Congress, and specifically um, an incredible resource that I know a, a couple historians have used, which is a register, an intake register of an orphanage that they ran in the wake of World War I, the Christian Herald Orphanage. And what struck me when I saw that source, just the digitized source um, on the Library of Congress's website, um, is it's very, very rare when you work on history of childhood and children, they usually are invisible. They are invisible in the archival record. Children, I tell my students all the time, be very careful before you start working on children because it's very difficult to find them. And this source not only had children by name, it had photographs of them. And it was so striking because it's so rare that those of us who work on children actually get to see the children that we're talking about. Um, We rarely get to know their names. And so this was such a kind of arresting image uh, when I first saw it. And then I was in Jerusalem to do my uh, doctoral dissertation work. And I can't remember, I was trying to recall uh, just earlier today how I found out about the American Colony Archive, but I I literally stumbled across it somehow. It was just opening. I mean, they were just in the process of trying to open it. And I thought, well, I have to go. I know the American Colony because of this orphanage was involved in welfare work and social welfare work. I'm here, I should go figure out what's going on. And I think I called the hotel. I think I called the front desk and asked to talk to Rachel. I, I think I had her name and I called the front desk and I said, can you help me? And they put me in touch with her and I ended up um, spending a, a great deal of time there uh, with her. Uh, they were in the process of processing a lot of the material. And so I 
I helped do that. I helped go through and process some of the, the stuff that I, I was interested in, um, some of the committee records of the American Colony Aid Association, things, things that the Spafford Children's Hospital, uh, different pieces of their work that I was interested in. And I was trying to be also helpful to the archive as it was uh, getting off the ground. On a personal level, it was also a real um, kind of refuge for me. Um, I, both because I, you know, I, I think doing research is a very lonely process and I was very alone in Jerusalem at that time. And so to get to go there and uh, work with Rachel and uh, have some space that was welcoming and friendly was, was wonderful. I was also, this was the, the years that I was doing the bulk of this research was 2014 and 2015. It was a very difficult time in Jerusalem. It was a very painful place to be. Um, and it was, so it, I really think of that space as for a personal kind of respite. Um, and so that's how I found the American colony. And then what I found probably unsurprisingly was that the American colony, the, the people who were involved in the American colony and in their sort of social welfare work just had their fingers in every single thing that I was interested in and, and, and connections with all the other people that I had found, you know, the, the social service association, which was a collection of women, uh, a sort of elite women in Palestine in the early 1920s that was trying to do welfare services. Well, they were all connected and they were connected to late in the later period, they were connected to some of the East Jerusalem uh, orphanages and rescue homes in the late thirties and around 48. They're just, they were just everywhere. Um, they were really, really a part of this network of welfare organizations and, and humanitarian aid. And so everything they did was leading to some aspect of my work. One uh, interesting thing that I remember Rachel Lev mentioned was that it is true that the American colony certainly originated in America with also a Swedish component. Mm -hmm. But by the beginning of the 20th century, they, they were rooted in the city. And, and as you mentioned, you can find traces of their work up until the 1930s, when essentially the work of the colony kind of uh, faded away. But they, they are in every institution, whether it's about welfare, trade, business, photography, obviously. Uh, and, and their presence is felt throughout the city. And, and I think like uh, as much as their agency faded away, also their history, and it's good to have people bringing it back because, uh, well, the hotel obviously is very important. It hosted a number of diplomatic uh, talks between various actors. But the American colony as a Jerusalemite institution somehow disappeared. And I think it's important to bring it back. Yeah, I would also say that I think it, it's a really good example of the challenges in drawing the boundaries, probably anywhere, certainly in Palestine and Jerusalem, between like what is local and what is foreign. Um, and, and that's not to say we should absent any ideas of power or colonial power, and we can read the American colony as having sort of colonizing power and all of that. And certainly anytime we talk about welfare, child welfare or social welfare, there's a colonial aspect there, but you know, yes, they're American and they were connected to Americans, even though 
they, in their own rhetoric, um, were saying, well, we're not like these other missions because we're not a mission, we're not evangelizing. And yet, of course, they had a huge financial investment in the United States. They had a lot of powerful connections in the United States, political connections. Um, but at the same time, yeah, they're, in, they're a part of this local network and this local landscape. And so I think that's, I think it's, you know, becomes not very useful at a certain point to draw the lines of local and foreign as, you know, Arab versus American, or, you know, that those, those are, um, those are important boundaries in some, in, in many respects, but I think looking at Jerusalem as a city that has so many different forms of kind of, of locality um, is also, can, can be a more useful process. Well, the American colony, as you mentioned, obviously uh, operating in different uh, industries, including welfare and care for children. And there is one thing that I never covered in the podcast, and that is the children of Jerusalem. So I was wondering if you can give us a sense, obviously historically in the period that you cover, who are the children of Jerusalem and uh, where are they placed in, you know, in the local society or also large in Palestine? Are there any ways in which we can, you know, sort of uh, figure out what I've been doing? Uh, are there any avenues for them to, you know, go to a playground and uh, interact with each other other than the school environment? Yes. Um, so this is, this is again, uh, we keep talking about these invisible inhabitants. And as I said, children are very challenging to find historically. Um, they aren't full people um, legally, so they don't appear in many ways. And one of the challenges of doing work on child welfare and history of childhood is to, to some extent, I'm necessarily replicating what my subjects did, which is making these children objects, right? They're just objects of care. And I don't wanna do that. I also wanna make them subjects in their own right, but it's challenging to find them. Um, so they, I mean, they were the children of Jerusalem and the children of Palestine were, you know, they were lots of different people. Um, and we see them, yes, in the school environment, but we also can see them through these welfare initiatives. Um, now, the, the, the children that you see when you're looking at child welfare um, are usually poorer children and more marginalized children because that's who these welfare organizations will target. Um, so that, those are the children that I work in and around, you know, on and around uh, mostly. Um, poor children or children who are seen to be by social welfare organizations or by the state seen to be potentially problems. Um, so a lot of, th there's a, a, a real interesting tension in child welfare in this period, which is on the one hand, it's about redemption and rescue and this idea of children as the future and that we need to develop them to be, you know, the, the good upstanding moral future. And on the other hand, embedded in that is a fear that they could also be a threat, that if you don't do that correctly, you're facing a threatening population. So for boys, the fear would be delinquency and criminality and violence. And for girls, the fear would be uh, sexual immorality and prostitution. And those threads are very, very omnipresent in the work the American colony did and, and other organizations, that this is 
So it's both about the innocence of children and needing to care for them because they're all of our responsibility and this fear of what happens uh, if we if we don't care for them and what kind of dangerous subjects they could become. And that of course is very inflected with ideas of race and religion um, and class. So in terms of the, the spaces that they occupied, it's interesting that you brought up the question of playgrounds um, because that is a, a, a particular space and the American colony did have a playground and playground committee. Um, and that's a, that's actually, in terms of future projects, something I'm thinking about, which is the, uh, the kind of role of play and child's play in, in Mandate Palestine, um, because it, it, it is a big thread in child welfare, the, sort of the, the idea of needing to give children social spaces, whether that's a playground, um, whether that's uh, organizations like scouting, um, whether that's sports, so these are all things that were happening in Palestine, uh, big, big sort of scouting organizations. Um, playgrounds were seen as spaces that could really, um, could divert some of the more dangerous tendencies of childhood, that if you give them a, a, a productive space to play, that you're going to make productive subjects. Um, playgrounds also became fraught um, spaces. So the American colonies playground, um, in the late thirties, they had to shut it down because there was so much concerns during the great revolt that, uh, about, uh, clashing and violence because their playground, they were making it an intercommunal space. So it was for Muslim, Christian, and Jewish children. Um, and then they had to shut it down at various points, or there were concerns about the tensions sort of coming out in, between children um, in these spaces of play. Um, so they're political spaces as well, I suppose. But I see, so in my work, I look at ch children in various arenas um, in public health. So in these infant clinics, um, I look at them in orphanages. Um, and I also look at them in the juvenile delinquency system. And that's a space where you actually really do see children on a, on a more granular individual level. I was interested in, you know, in your work, and if you found any interesting story that you may want to share with us about some of the children, whether in Jerusalem or at large in Palestine. Again, we know so very little about them that, for instance, in my own work, the only children I came across are the children that were destitute and uh, might have been the object even of uh, uh, cannibalism during World War One. We don't know whether it was true or not, but there were these stories going on. So. There's very little that we know, and obviously there are no names effectively. So these are more stories than real history. And I was wondering if you have any, you know, to share with us. That's a good question. Um, so where I see children by name, because that is an issue. It's such an issue that we don't know any granular information. Um, and in some places in orphanages, you can see that. So the Christian Herald Orphanage was good at, um, in their intake register, they have very bare bones information. It was for donors, uh, you know, here's this girl and this is what we rescued her from. So give us money. Um, there's that. Uh, Darl Tiffel, uh, which was a, another orphanage organization founded in 1948 um, in East Jerusalem also have, I have their uh, register, again, photographs and information about children and what happened to them. Most of them 
um, were survivors of the Dayasin massacre. And uh, so a bit about what happened to their parents. But again, where I see children, and this is so complicated for me, where I see them most uh, as individuals most is when they're arrested um, and processed through the juvenile delinquency system. And that's unsurprising because when a child is arrested, they're moved into this liminal space between childhood and adulthood, and they sort of become visible to the state, right? As, as potential criminals or as criminals. And so in my work on juvenile delinquency, and that's something I'm, I'm working on right now, um, I have many more concrete stories of these, of kids um, and teenagers. And I have those in two ways. One is arrest records, which are mostly aggregate. They, they have you know names, age, what they were arrested for. Um, and the other are these very uh, limited, but very powerful um, group of files on, on juvenile delinquents who were imprisoned or incarcerated either in reformatory schools or in prison. And in those, you get a lot more of a story of what is going on. Um, and you have some amount of information from the, their families because families wrote to the government to try to petition for their children's release. Um, and so there I have fascinating stories about, um, I mean, all, all surrounding these crimes, but, but that really tell you a bit about um, kids' lives. Most of the children who are arrested are arrested for things like theft, of course. Um, but you have some children uh, who are brought before the juvenile court because of assumed neglect by parents. I had a, probably the most difficult file I read in the archive was a, a story of three young, very young children, three siblings um, who were taken by the by the state, uh, by the court, uh, because there was some question about their parents' ability to parent. I think maybe the mother was thought to be a prostitute, which was a, a common reason that children were taken or the father had abandoned them. And they were placed in the reformatory school, even though they were not accused of a crime. And their grandfather was petitioning to try to get custody. Um, and the children had two of the two girls had maybe been, they, they were sent to a, like a, a Christian orphanage at one point and the family was Muslim and the grandfather was trying to get them back. And then he was focusing on the, the, on the grandson who was quite little. It was a really heartbreaking story. I mean, of this grandfather trying and trying to argue for his ability to take care of, of his grandchildren. Um, but those stories, they're not uplifting stories in the juvenile delinquency records, but that's where I see, you know, people's lives actually coming out. I have a couple more questions mm -hmm. before the end of the interview. And one is about uh, society. I mean, you're covering the sort of the history of the British mandate, but also moving on after 1948. And that period was uh, ripe of many social changes. And I was wondering if you ever like any sense of how the various societies you know of palestine looked at children and how they you know sort of a maybe change attitude towards the children yes um so this is a time of incredible 
change, I think, in how children were viewed globally. So uh, one of the reasons that I, my time period is located where it is, is that this is a moment after World War I, especially where there's this real global discourse about children in a new way. Uh, the idea of children as the future, uh, that, that's not necessarily new, but it becomes very, very prominent and very internationalized. So this, this sense that you know, children are all of our futures and, and they get kind of dislocated from their families, right? We, we all have to take care of children and that might supersede a family's claim to their child or a local community's claim to their child because they belong to all of us. And we all have an obligation to make sure they're being raised correctly. Um, in Palestine, I definitely see this discourse coming in, um, in the twenties and thirties, a lot around, uh, another project that I, or another piece of this project that I'm working on right now, which is, um, discussions of infant feeding and how to care for babies, uh, through, you know, feeding practices, which was a big concern of a lot of people in Palestine after World War I because infant mortality rates were very high after uh, the war. And so I see a lot of discussion in newspapers, among medical sort of professionals, um, among community leaders about the, the idea of we need to take learn how to take care of our children in a, in a way that will encourage them to grow up and be part of the modern future. Um, which is again, a, this is a common story in the mid 20th century kind of writ large. Um, but there is this, this big emphasis on that. And a lot of the, I think a lot of the assumptions would be that we're talking about children as a piece of the nationalist future, which is, which is true, uh, that, that is a part of it. But what I found is really a discussion of children as, as the future in a much broader sense that might be nationalist, but it might also be community oriented and it might be about the future of your family. But there is this big emphasis on that. There also, I think, interestingly, is a, well, well, I will say a piece of what I found in doing some research on, on infant feeding, discourses of infant feeding, is the concerns that Palestinian doctors had about infant mortality and infant feeding. A lot of it was inflected with a lot of sort of classism, the idea that rural mothers were ignorant, that they were subscribing to superstition, um, that therefore they weren't feeding according to a sort of scientific model. But there was also a big um, emphasis on the idea that Palestinian mothers really, really loved their children. And that, that so there, there wasn't a, that they were too indulgent. That was the critique, was they're too indulgent, but that's because they love like too much. Um, and the, it was really interesting because it's, it's a little bit different than the kind of discourse you're going to see from the colonial government about how Palestinians were parenting. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, the children, children were fe featuring quite prominently, I think, um, in, in anxieties about the future, but also in sort of hopes and plans. And you see that in the late thirties and certainly after 48, 
um, when there are all of these institutions and, and organizations popping up to care for children, um, obviously because of the circumstances of the you know, children who are orphaned in, during the Great Revolt or children who are orphaned in 48, but how important children become in that moment for the idea of, uh, of a future. So that's pretty omnipresent um, at, at a lot of levels in medical discourse, but also from community leaders, um, social reformers. Um, so, yeah. I guess as a last question, I wanna pick up on um, what you just said, talking about future. So I was wondering about your uh, future research plan and your future projects. So what's, uh, what's next? You're a very young scholar. You just produce a couple of very important contributions. So just out of curiosity, I guess the listeners would be very curious to know what's in store for them. Yes, that's a great question. Um, so I have, uh, I certainly have a book project coming out of my doctoral dissertation, which looks at a lot of these things that I've talked about, but you know more comprehensively. Um, so that that's on the horizon. I can't promise how how soon on the horizon. Um, as as for everyone, life has become a little bit more complicated in the last couple of years than I expected. More specifically, I'm, I am currently working on uh, other article manuscripts that are, are pieces of, of this work. So uh, a, a piece on this um, juvenile delinquency uh, question and, and the role of families in, in, in sort of advocating for their children and um, a project on, as I was just talking about, uh, sort of discourses of infant feeding, which is really talking about the intersection of ideas of scientific child rearing, um, but also uh, multinational corporations and the sort of spread of um, corporate advertising uh, in Palestine and how that, that uh, influenced kind of ideas about, about feeding children and, and raising them. This was Professor Julia Schatz. Julia is a currently assistant professor at Fresno State and the author of The Politics of Care, Local Nurses in Mandate Palestine, published by Ijmes, and of Governing Jerusalem Children Revealing Invisible Inhabitants, which was published in Ordinary Jerusalem, 1840-1940, which was an edited work published by Dalakhanis and Vincent Lemire and is available online as it is an open access publication. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.